Episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I'm joined. Hey, by Joe Kat- Patrice from Above the Law. Hey, I'm joined by Catherine Rubino and Chris Williams. We're, you know, all at Above the Law, and we have this show every week to give you a quick rundown of some of the big stories of the week that was in legal. And before we get all that started, we should, you know, do something, you know, to make ourselves seem a little bit more human, like people, not just like yeah. reciting stories. That's right. You just, you know, it's time for small talk. Okay, I, I see what you did there. Yeah. It's not that funny. You Joe, think you're you funnier the, than you are. Uh, agreed. But Joe, do you want to be the first <laughs> to prove your hermit humanity? Just to make sure. Because I've seen you has, hesitate with those CAPTCHA tests. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, so yeah, no, I am uh, busily baking away cookies and stuff. Busily uh, made baking. fudge. Uh, you know, like all the all the usual fudge. holiday. Uh, is, is fudge? Well, I don't know. I'm on fudge talk. So I feel like I've gotten a lot talk. of... Fudge talk. There is a whole fudge talk. There's a woman who has this fudge list, and I've been inundated with stories of get people getting in and off of her fudge list. It's a whole vibe. But I don't tend to think of fudge as a traditional Christmas treat. You don't? No. Growing up, we never had fudge. Oh. We had cookies. Yeah, I mean, I have cookies too. We had cakes. Yeah, but, I don't know. Somebody should uh, consult the holy text and see if Fudge is mentioned on that uh, movie Elf. With, uh, <laughs> was, it, was it Will Ferrell? It mm-hmm. is Will Ferrell. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I default to I default to him. Well, are you having my, uh, spaghetti with with syrup? I mean, I, I don't think that that's no, necessarily the definitive text. No, but what I'm saying is, it is now a tradition because it was an Elf. Ah, not a good tradition. <laughs> but it's an elf. So there's some some textual basis for associating with Christmas. I mean, yeah, it's 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 a whole it's a it's a whole vibe. It's Christmassy. I'm anyway, also not so, having spaghetti yeah. with chocolate syrup because I recently got my wisdom tooth removed. Oof. And that will not be the reason that I get dry socket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um by the way, uh it hurts. Mm-hmm. Um I, uh, I I don't know what happened. Maybe I said something I was on sedative. Definitely not. But they sent me home without the proper instructions on what pills to take. So oh, no. I was in uh, a pain that I would describe as excruciating. And I was like, yeah, I, w- I missed the days of food poisoning suffering. This was something <laughs> completely different. Um, but now I'm fine. I'm on oh, multiple good. pills and like one of them is like a 800 milligram Tylenol and another one was like a, a weak opiate. And I was like, oh, I just had the Tylenol within six hours. Don't want to OD on Tylenol. Guess I'll take the dope. <laughs> so, that <was> a, <laughs> so that was a fun mental balancing thing to do. Yeah. Well, so how, how are we doing there? Do, do you have something to add, Catherine? Well, my family has has already come to town for the for the Christmas holiday, so I am in the middle of what we affectionately refer to in my uh, family as Christmas camp, meaning that when family's here, we have a series of of Christmas based activities that I am trying to balance with my job uh, at the moment. But we've we've done some some Santa ing. We've done some other sort of merriment and. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Then the the elf on the shelf has visited um, our house. They apparently track my nieces mm. and uh, have decided have found my locale and uh, are are continuing to surveil them at my house. Oh, you know, there was a point where elf on the shelf felt like a kind of pretty capitalist dystopian metaphor for the state watching us everywhere we go. But now yeah. I just think it's it's just Amazon. the elf on the shelf has you from a to z (laughs) that's that's all both both of those analogies i think are pretty fair (laughs) all right well cool that seems like we've talked smallly enough you small talk what small talk (laughs) you i fall for it every time don't Mm -hmm. i you're you're (laughs) <laughs> I like that you didn't have the soundboard last week, so now you're yeah, like making up making for up, it and just trying to be- yeah. <laughs> What should we be talking about first? Uh, I think the most successful story written by uh, one of us was your story about how law firms are profitable. Uh, yes, uh, that is actually a trivia question. Uh, that no was- kidding. That, well, it's the most popular thing that wasn't written by Hector. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, based on Law 360's uh, latest survey of uh, compensation. Uh, and they did a pretty deep dive into compensation numbers for non-equity partners, equity partners, overall, all that kind of stuff. And I think some of the information was, was pretty interesting. They divided it up by size of firm. And if you were to guess what the average compensation for equity partners who have over 600 attorneys, so the very, very large firms, Mm. what would you say that average compensation would be? Average? Mm Mm-hmm. At least $27. You're you're both correct. It's $2 million is the average compensation. The high end uh, at those large firms is $8 million. Okay. Uh, The low end of that scale is about $300,000. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 101 to 600 attorneys fares between the 205,000 to 3 million range with the average coming in at 810. And obviously, uh, 100 or fewer attorneys is going to be wildly different depending right. on what kind of a firm it is, right? I think that has the largest span of of numbers, um, like high and the low, because again, you're getting some boutiques that are wildly profitable and you're getting some just kind of small law firms. <laughs> so that that equity partner numbers range uh, in that very small firm between 100,000 and 9, 7.9 million. <laughs> I mean, talk about wanting to ride the curve. That is, what is what is the average? You said the average is 800K? The average is 800K for that middle group, that 101 to 600 attorneys, which Shouts out a to lot everybody with a C getting money as far as like <laughs> C's income. That's wonderful. But uh, yeah, I, I did think that was interesting. And, and maybe more interesting is some of their non-equity partner numbers, because we've talked, I think, on the mm-hmm. podcast before about big law firms wanting to expand that non-equity partner rank. It's kind of a cheap way to increase diversity. I, I think that there's a, a lot of, you know, fair complaints that that's what that non-equity tier is being used for at a lot of firms. Not, you know, universally, of course, but I think that that is also true. And figuring out where non-equity is, is it a, is it a weight? Is it a station that they just park folks, you know, they just park folks there? Is it a stepping stone to equity partnership? I think that is wildly different depending on firm. And I think some of that 
co- those compensation numbers are are very interesting also because we've had certainly as we are talking about associate compensation raises that are going through we certainly have some non-equity partners being like you know they're getting paid more than us than I am. <laughs> and in that top tier of uh, a law, big law firm by size, so more than 600 attorneys, the range of compensation for non-equity partners is between 200000 which again is definitely below those senior associate numbers that we're seeing mm-hmm. in big law, uh, and $1.2 million. Wow. With the average coming in at five hundred and sixteen thousand, which okay. is pretty much exact, very close to what these new compensation numbers, when you count bonuses, actually it's slightly lower than when you count bonuses for those senior associates that the the new the new round of raises has has put where they've put folks. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah. So it, it really confirms that the non-equity partner is just a permanent senior associate yeah. in the way in which they deal with it now, which you know is a change. I mean, I. Like special counsel back when I was starting out was a form of non-equity partnership of sorts, uh, mm-hmm. but they certainly did better than just be a senior associate for life. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I think that you know, as we're getting information that more and more, fo- more and more firms, Cravath, you know, has now created this non-equity tier, which is a huge change for the firm. More firms are wanting to not just create the tier if they haven't already, but expand the number of folks in it. I think that that is going to be a real pain point uh, because that level, unlike associate compensation, is black boxed, mm-hmm. right? There is right. no, there are no memos that come out that say this is what our non-equity partners make. I would I wouldn't say no memos, but there are very few firms that sure, do that. Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's not it it's not that kind of open information that the other right. that the associate level gets in big law. So I think that it, it is ripe for sort of questions about how folks are being treated. No, I think that's true. But you know, they're very profitable, which is why they're paying more in bonuses this year and increasing well, their salary. Bonuses are are at last year's levels, but salaries well, are well, right. Yeah. I guess I just wrote a story about people paying more. I actually all the stories I've written today have been about people paying more in bonuses. Fair enough, year. fair enough. But I think the, the industry average, That's the Cravath, the Cravath and Milbank but numbers, they're paying more in salary, yes. which is the key. Yeah. Yes. Well, even if they're going to complain about it, they have the money. That's the moral <laughs> of all this. McDermott, Will and Emery is Vault's number one law firm for associate satisfaction, three years running. Why? Because they're doing big law better. At McDermott, you define what your success looks like. They help you achieve it. McDermott's award-winning professional development program and hands-on mentorship propel you toward your goals, while the industry-leading wellness benefits help you feel your best so you can do your best. Want to see how your life could be better at McDermott? Head to mwe.com slash above the law. Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Okay, another story. This is a, you know, little, you know, legal tech story. So obviously this is the most fun stuff that we cover. (laughs) 
<laughs> you I mean, this is funny because I know what story you're trying to tee up and it actually is a crazy, interesting story, but perhaps not because it's a legal text story. <laughs> oh, well, true. Actually, that's a great point because that is my angle. I don't think this is fundamentally a text story, but um, Michael Cohen, best known as Trump's former fixer who has pleaded guilty and dutifully testified against his former boss in law enforcement probes into his business dealings. So because he's been behaved himself and offered testimony and done all the things he's supposed to do, his lawyer put in a letter motion seeking to have uh, Cohen's supervised release terminated. So mm. he would uh, you know, shorten his sentence because he's done such a good job. Uh, and in doing so, he cited some cases, uh, instances in the Second Circuit where people mm-hmm. under various conditions that were you know, similar to his saw their supervised release terminated. Uh, he did not put these in a string site or anything. He actually mm. had full like sections. Well, describing. sure. I mean, I mean, when cases are really on point and analogous to your situation, that that makes a fair amount of sense. So these cases don't exist. Oh, uh, as the the judge noted that couldn't find any of these cases existing, and has an order to show cause for. Uh, the attorney to explain how this happened. I think we all, we, while we don't know what happened, I think we, we all, all know, know what, what happened. happened. <laughs> and what we know happened here is someone used, whether it was ChatGPT or one of the other commercial facing art of generative artificial intelligence tools, was being used as a legal research tool, which is not what it's designed to, designed do. to do. The thing that gets me about this story is. We have you. You have written multiple stories at this point of of attorneys in small little cases that exist getting caught using Chat GPT, getting sanctions as a result of using Chat yep. BTT, GPT in legal research, and those are not wildly publicized, famous defendants. Yeah, the fact that this is one of the more important cases on the federal docket at this point uh, means it's going to get outsized attention. And it does, you know, it does speak to how it got caught. Uh, It is worth noting, the judge noted this, uh, and I believe Cohen's like former counsel or or new counsel or something uh, also noted it, but prosecutors didn't seem particularly uh, on top of the fact that these cases weren't real. Uh, And Obviously, if prosecutors are going to drop the ball on anything, I'm glad they're doing it on the way in which it helps uh, somebody through the criminal justice system <laughs> to the end. But the takeaway I had was that the real concern is that not everybody in the criminal justice system is going to have the attention and resources of somebody in the, a high-profile case like this. And someday soon, there will be some sites like these that are used in a way that actually hurts somebody. And and no one's going to catch it. This is a case where people were were glued in, uh, and may, you know I worry about the cases yeah, where they are. Well, yes, I, I definitely think you're right. But uh, what do you think is is the potential answer? Do you have folks add as an appendix an actual the text of all the cases? Do they have them like I want to print it out from one of the following you know 
potentially a printed out from one of the following uh, services. But even that I'm not a huge fan of because I don't necessarily think that we want to be forcing people to be using, uh, you know, paying mm -hmm. high, heavy subscriptions for that. Uh, getting the text doesn't work because as we learned from the initial New York case where somebody used chat GPT and got caught, uh, if you ask it, hey, give me the text of this, it will make that up too. Uh, <laughs> that, was what, that was how they get, kept digging themselves deeper in that case. I think the only answer ultimately is improved technology. And as we transition into a world where Lexus and Westlaw are coming out with their gen AI offerings that are tied to good data, that is going to make this better. I still have some concerns about how generative AI models do legal research even when the data is good. Mm -hmm. I think it, how do I put this? I think that by their nature, the way in which the algor those algorithms attempt to attack a research problem is to give you the right answer, which is not always the answer one wants or mm. should have. So I think it's, I think what they do is provide very good responses for somebody who's doing say compliance work or, you know, doing some like in-house counseling. It doesn't always do the best work for litigation where you aren't always trying to say, Hey, here's the, most likely answer, uh, most likely result based on the case law, uh, and just kind of reinscribe maybe a, a mistake in the law. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's going to be philosophical problems with it all down the road, but at least those are citing real cases. Yeah, I mean, I think that in terms of philosophically questionable answers to this problem, I do think that throwing the book at the attorneys who use these cheats is probably something we're coming pretty close to. It's not, you know, at this point, we're not at the first or second or even third time that this has made legal news. Where I think we're rapidly approaching the point that you can say, no, no, this is going to be a real problem for you. And yeah. I think that, you know, jurisdictions coming up with very strict guidelines as it uh, comes to generative AI and saying, you know, if you get caught, it's your license. See, now, I I don't necessarily agree. Uh, actually, I, I... I said it's, it's ethically questionable. But I yeah. strongly disagree with that. Okay. Um, I think that these tools are good and regulations to try and tamp down on them are only going to hurt more people. The issue here and why I don't ultimately think this is a tech... This is a tech-adjacent issue and not a tech issue is the problem here was not asking ChatGPT to give you some cases and then using them. The issue here was having it give you some cases and then you didn't bother to check them. The issue is doing that next step of basic legal work, which is checking things. I, I think that you're. I think you're correct, but I think maybe the uh, rule gets written as as it's not that. Oh, you use ChatGPT. If you have a case that is not does not exist, if you falsified case in your right. submission, then it's your license. Right. Well, right. And and that, I think, has been true all along, right? Like, we don't need any new rules for a tech reason uh, here. People made up a case coming out of the books. It should be. Correct. Know, yeah. Correct. But maybe as it is increasingly common because of perhaps technology, it is worth jurisdictions clarifying that this is something they take wildly serious. And, you know, oh, I was overworked and I used ChatGPT is not an excuse. Yeah, I I don't know. I I I I think it is a disservice to fixing this problem to try and tag it on that vector. And I think that any rules or 
guidance that is tied to the idea of the AI being key to this mistake, Mm -hmm. it just lets people off the hook. Uh, The issue here is that they're lazy, that they should have read the cases that they're citing, and they didn't, and that's a problem. But no, it's another another good uh, another fun case. If you were a judge, yes. and knowing that this is happening, mm-hmm. and, and you know maybe you maybe you did catch it in you know the high profile Michael Cohen kind of case, what do you wh- what is your standing orders to your clerks to make sure that your court doesn't inadvertently uh, sign on to these fake cases? And I don't think this one's very difficult. You just you just need to actually pull all the case like the standard operating procedure has generally been and should be that when you when you're resolving a motion like this you you go on to whatever subscription service you have available to you and you pull all the cases and that's just always how this works uh and so i guess if they're doing if the judges are yeah. doing no what matter how many how many cases there are to string state we're gonna need them all yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you just yeah. bust them all out and they like Maybe in with the overworked federal dockets, you aren't getting into the weeds of every single one of them, but you're at least printing them all out. You're at least looking at the relevant language of them. If they're doing their jobs, they will be able to catch these things. The concern is that there might be folks out there who are not, who are taking it lazy. And let, the federal docket has its issues because there are some very non-qualified people on that docket after the last administration. We know because the... ABA pointed out that they were unqualified when they got those jobs. <laughs> but they're at least, I, I feel a lot better about that. Uh, on the state level, you have mm-hmm. judges who are, especially ones who are elected, who they, there's a wide range from people who are highly responsible jurists to mm-hmm. people folks who, are, who just won yeah. an election, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's where I think there's a real risk For of sure. problems. Anyway, let's take a break before we talk about the other side of the Michael Cohen uh, story, a person in Trump's orbit who is not did, did the right thing <laughs> and uh, one who's not cooperating. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. Okay, so we're back. Let's... uh, Rudy Giuliani had quite the little adventure uh, in court. Uh, As you may recall, uh, among the many legal issues he has now put himself into, he also was being sued for defamation for going on national cable media and repeating multiple defamatory lies about Georgia poll workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Though That led to those workers getting death threats and having to move and all this sort of stuff. Bad stuff. Uh, This lawsuit has been going on for a long time. It went on so long that with Giuliani refusing to comply with various discovery deadlines, that we reached the point that you almost never see (sighs) of the judge issuing uh, death penalty sanctions on him and 
directing a verdict. So he, for not complying with any of the discovery obligations, he was deemed liable for defamation out of the gate. So we moved directly to a sentencing phase. The sentencing phase we had last week, that was the phase in which he was only supposed to testify. Well, the case was only about how much. Right. Uh, how much how much money the poll workers were owed. So he spent the time explaining how he was going to be telling his side of the story, which, of course, that chip has is irrelevant. Uh, then he spent his time explaining how he was actually right and they actually did all these things. So he defamed which is new them causes, again. new causes of action. Yeah. Then he spun a theory about how their lawyer, Mike Gottlieb, was a friend of Hunter Biden somehow and worked for Burisma, which he used to work at a firm that had also done work for Burisma, but that's uh, yeah. it's not really the same. really the same. He promised that he was going to testify. He did not do that uh, in a victory for lawyers everywhere who tell their clients to do please, smart please things. Don't. Please don't do this. And with all of that, uh, he is now on the hook for almost $150 million. Wild. There are bad defendants that you you, you get as as an attorney, right? Like the I think of the Alex Obviously Jones none case. Of mine. <laughs> Go on. But I, I think of like the Alex Jones case, which had a similar sort of uh, sanctions uh, put upon them, big eye popping verdicts, that kind of stuff. But what really should get your attention in this instance is that Rudy Giuliani is famous because he was a good lawyer. Well. He's famous for having been a successful prosecutor. Yes. Let's yes. Perhaps that is more accurate. Combine the perhaps yeah. <laughs> that is more accurate. But he rose to prominence in the first instance because right. he was going after the mob. Yes. As he, an as a prosecutor. He was very successful as a prosecutor. Yes. That, that does not necessarily I, I hear the distinction you're creating. Yeah. I, I think we we're all on board. But he still rose to prominence as an attorney. Right. He used that prosecutor's cap to get elected as mayor in New York City. He did. He used that as a badge of honor for a large chunk of his career. And now, in sort of the twilight of his prominence, he's seemingly throwing all of those values that lawyers might have to the wayside uh, in order for, I don't know, five more minutes of fame. Yeah. He claims to basically have no money. So this uh, 148 million or whatever it is, is probably going to sap whatever he has. And, uh, you know, but he's making cameos and uh, maybe with enough if he can get some of that George Santos level of fame, he can get. Uh, wow. wow, wow, wow. Yeah. He can make some money. And uh, yeah, so if you're interested in contributing to these Georgia poor poll workers, you should hire Rudy to do embarrassing cameos and post them places. <laughs> oh, no. If you were to get Rudy to say something on a cameo, what would it be? Well, I mean, the, he's already, uh, people have already used his cameo to make him explain how his clients were wrong in a case. Mm. Uh, so he's already been uh, trolled by cameo people, uh, cameo customers before. So, but now, but that, but after that, I think he got more circumspect about which cameos he takes. He can't really afford to do that now. So, mm. so if you have, if you've hired Rudy Giuliani to do an embarrassing cameo, you can send that our <laughs> right. way. It's tips at abovelaw.com, and we'd be happy to publicize it. Actually, before we say that, I don't know. Are there 
I guess there probably aren't. I, I was wondering if there were any terms of service that, like, say you can't use it for trolling purposes. But I guess not because George I mean, Santos' first one. It appears to be their business model. That's yeah, George Santos' <laughs> first one was a, was a trolling uh, video that Fetterman paid for, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe. Oh, well. Uh, so, yeah, I think that brings us to the end. Yeah, this will be our last show before the holiday. So those who celebrate are currently we're in the middle of Hanukkah. Uh, Christmas is coming up and then followed by Kwanzaa. So hope people are having a happy and safe uh, holiday season. Right. And we will have one more episode, a, a year, a year wrap up mm-hmm. before uh, before we move into the 2023. Next year. What happened? Yeah, <laughs> so much. All right. <laughs> so thanks to everybody for listening subscribe to the show you get new episodes when they come out you do reviews at the stars write things all of that you should be listening to the Jabot Catherine's other program I'm a guest on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable you should listen to the other offerings of the Legal Talk Network you should follow us on social media uh, the publication is at ATL blog I'm at Joseph Patrice she's at Catherine One he's at Rights for Rent Chris is also writes for Rent and Blue Sky, and Catherine's also Catherine One at Blue Sky. I, however, am just Joe Patrice. I managed to get myself shortened. How did you that. make it more difficult by shortening the name? Well, the thing is, I originally had Joe Patrice on Twitter, mm. but I had a Twitter account years before Twitter became a thing, and I don't know how to pl- how to log into it. So I had to recreate an account as Joseph, and that's how I got stuck with that. Anyway neither here nor there with all that said we will uh talk about the year in review next time if you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.